Good morning. Good morning. Okay, cool. I just want to make sure you guys are awake out there. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kurt McGonnell. I'm the lead pastor here at Gospel Community Church. Uh, we've been traveling through uh, the book of Jonah, uh, and so we land in chapter 3. So uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there uh, as we get ready to study God's Word this morning. Uh, I want to begin by asking you a question and kind of hoping that by asking this question, you'll, you'll begin to search your heart a little bit this morning as we travel through this text. What is it that you live for? What do you, what do you live for? What, what do you, when you wake up in the morning, what's on your mind? When you, when you go to bed at night, what are you still meditating on? What, what is it that drives you, that motivates you, that, that pushes you forward throughout all of your life? What do you live for? Now, Another way to ask that very same question would be this. What do you worship? What do you wor- th- those, those two questions are essentially the same. W- what is it that you worship? Now, when, when I say worship, I want to define that for us so that we're all operating on the same definition. When I say worship, a lot of us immediately think, uh, you know, maybe singing a song or uh, we, we think about uh, maybe someone bowing down to a, a graven image or an idol. Or When I say worship, I mean, what is it that you devote your time your talent, and your treasure to, okay? Because whatever you devote your time, your talent, and your treasure to, that's what you worship and that's what you live for. What is the focus of your time? What is the focus um, of your talent? What is the focus of your treasure? Okay, so, so I'm using that word focus very intentionally because some would say, well, I, I spent a lot of time at work, I guess. Does that mean I worship my job? Well, maybe, but not necessarily, Okay? When you're at your job, you can still be worshiping the Lord with your time by talking with your coworkers about the Lord, by praying for the people you work with, so on and so forth. So, so it's better to say, or, or another way to think about it would, would be this. What is the focus of my time, or how do I leverage my talent, or how do I leverage my finances? I mean, honestly, you know, most of our finances do go to pay bills, right? Does that mean we worship our house and our car? For some, absolutely, but not necessarily. So, so for you in your heart this morning, I want you to ask yourself this question, what do you worship? What do you live for? Are, are, are you really worshiping God? Are you really leveraging your time, your talent, and your treasure for him? Are, are you really looking at all three of those areas of your life and saying, how can I give God his right and due glory? Or are you using those three things to terminate on yourself or other things? You see, many of us worship our families, right? Many of us worship our job. Many of us worship our home. And, and that's the crazy thing because a lot of times it's not necessarily bad things. It's great to have a family. It's great to have a job, right? Those are really good things. But the problem is when you take a really good thing and you make it a God thing, you take the things and the gifts that God has given you and you use them to dethrone him and enthrone that, um, and so some of us have come this morning and, and we absolutely worship our family. We allow our children uh, and for husbands, we allow our wives and their moods to dictate everything that we do. We devote our time, our talent, and our treasure to terminate on family. Okay, We, we live in the South, people. Come on. <laughs> A lot of us use our, our job as our, our idol or what we worship. We allow our time, our talent, and our treasure to only terminate on our job for the sake of success. 
Success is our idol, and we love it, and we live and die on whether we're successful or not. For many of us, it's acceptance. I think for a lot of us, it's acceptance. We live and die uh, by what people say, right? We, We will devote our time, our talent, and our treasure to getting other people to accept us because we live and die by what they say, meaning when they compliment us, oh, man, our heart just, you know, explodes and, and we walk on air for the next four days because that person said something uh, that was a compliment to you and you also die by that same thing. So when they don't compliment you or when they talk down to you, your whole world is just broken. Why? Why? It's because we, we worship acceptance and we worship things of this world. And, and sometimes it's not good things. Sometimes it's sex. Sometimes it's alcohol, sometimes it's prescription medication, sometimes it's illegal drugs, right, that, that we worship. So, so again, what do you devote your time, your talent, and your treasure to? The reason that I wanted to ask that question is because, I, uh, let, let us narrow the focus here. The reason I asked that question is because of this. Whatever it is that you worship, okay, whatever it is that you worship is going to be an evil taskmaster unless it's God. Okay, whatever you worship is going to be an evil taskmaster, meaning it's always going to demand and want more unless it's God. And so if you worship your job, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to vote your time, your talent, and your treasure to that job. You're going to work as hard as you can and move as far up the ladder as you can until you get to a stopping point. And then you say something like this. Well, I need to go back to school to get more education so that I can get a better job and continue to advance. If it's success, you're going to devote your time, your talent, and your treasure to success. And the answer is only going to be more. If you get success, what do you want? more success, right? If it's sex, if you devote your life to sex, listen, there's never enough. It's always going to be more. If it's alcohol, it's always going to be more. You can never drink enough, right? So anything that you worship other than God ends up being a, a taskmaster. The, the, reason, um, that God is, the, the reason that worshiping God doesn't put us on this endless treadmill of more is because of what he said on the cross. You remember what he said? It's finished, it's, it's done, right? That God is the only God who does this for us. Every other God demands more and more and more. Every other God demands that you get on the treadmill and fight harder to get more and more and more. But God, the God of the Bible, is unique in this, that he says on the cross, it's finished, it's done. I've completed all that needs to be done. And so you don't have to get on the performance treadmill, Right? This is what's so amazing about God and who he is and his grace that he just says, I've chosen you by my grace. It is by grace alone that you've been saved. It's not by what you do. It's about what he has done. Right? That's what separates God from every other false God out there. That this God, the God of the Bible, says it is finished, it's completed, and it's by my grace alone. Amen? You guys awake this morning? Okay. So, the story of Jonah is about that God. The the story of Jonah, listen, the story of Jonah is not about a ship. (laughs) The story of Jonah is not about a boat. It's not even about a giant fish. It's not even about Jonah. (laughs) The story of, of Jonah is actually about a God who is full of grace who is full of love and who is full of mercy and sets us free by worshiping him. 
right? Every other God that you worship puts you in bondage. You become enslaved to your home, you become enslaved to acceptance, you become enslaved to sex, you become enslaved to alcohol, you become enslaved to success. But God is the only God that when you worship him, you're actually set free because of his grace, because he's relentlessly pursuing you. He's relentlessly chasing you down, communicating to you time and time again through a billion different ways, you're my son or you're my daughter and I love you, and I will never give up on you. That's the story of Jonah. (laughs) It's the story of God's relentless pursuit of us to set us free from worshiping gods that put us on a treadmill uh, of performance. That's the story of Jonah, and so that's what we're going to see. We're we're going to learn. I've, I've been so so blown away about how this story just continually reveals God's character. And so that, that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to examine chapter three and, and learn something and see something about God's unique character and God's unique nature, okay? Look at, look at the beginning of chapter three. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, okay? Uh, now, look at chapter one. Beginning of chapter one, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Okay, that, they just said the same thing. So chapter three is essentially the reset button. Chapter three is the do-over. Chapter three is, it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. This is the, this is the do-over. This is the reset. So what, what happened in chapters one and two? Okay, real quickly, if you haven't been here with us, I'm just going to recap this. Here's what happened in chapter one and chapter two. God shows up and he speaks to this dude named Jonah. He tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to call out against that city, okay, because their evil has come up before my eyes. And so I, I want you to go there and preach. That's what I want you to do. Instead of doing that, what does he do? He goes the exact opposite direction. He goes down to Joppa to board a boat that will take him to Tarshish. He he runs in the exact opposite direction, and and we discovered why. Do you remember why? Because he's self-righteous, because he's a racist, and because he's a nationalist. Okay, We we saw in in Jonah chapter 4 where where he says, God, the reason that I didn't want to go and preach to Nineveh is because I knew that you would be nice to them. (laughs) I knew that you would relent and save them if I went and preached. Okay? He believed that Nineveh wasn't deserving of God's grace. Now, if you believe someone else isn't deserving of God's grace, the other side of that coin is that you believe that you are, which means you're self-righteous. <laughs> so, so he's self-righteous. That's why he doesn't obey God and go to Nineveh and preach. In addition, he's a racist. He believes that the Israelite people are better than every other race because God gave them the covenants and the promises and the signs. and God did all this great stuff for them, which makes them superior to those dirty, nasty, rotten, smelly, filthy pagans over there in Nineveh, right? He, he's also a nationalist, Right? He wants to preserve Israel, and if Nineveh continues to be strong, then what are they going to do? Well, they're going to rise up and come and conquer Israel. Right? So, so he doesn't believe God. He doesn't trust God, um, and, and he goes the opposite direction. So what does God do? Fine, Jonah, have it your way. Forget you. No. God does the most loving thing. He hurls a storm at him. <laughs> Right, you look at that and you're like, man, that's not very loving for you to do, God. Well, I mean, you know, he, he threw a storm at him, like, why not, you know, 
hurl hugs at him. You know, the sailors just hugging him. You know, we love you. We're showing you God's love. No, he throws a storm that threatens to break the ship apart, right? That, that's how massive this storm is. The storm comes bearing down on them, um, and, and, and that is God showing how much he loves Jonah. So, of course, uh, then the, the sailors realize uh, that this massive storm is Jonah's fault. Why? Because God is still lovingly pursuing Jonah by sending the pagan sailors to say, what are you doing, you sleeper? Wake up and pray to your God and maybe he'll spare us, right? So the pagan ends up telling Jonah to pray, right, because God is still pursuing him. Then they cast lots and the lot lands on Jonah because God is so loving that he exposes Jonah for who and what he is and what he's been doing. Um, And then what happens next is they decide that, well, if the storm is going to stop, we've got to throw Jonah in in the ocean. And so that's exactly what they do. They pitch him over, and and the storm ceases. But right before Jonah drowns and dies, which he rightfully deserves, by the way, God, again, in his loving pursuit, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, unstoppable love, God sends a giant fish to swallow this dude. And, and keeps him there for three days, right? Then what happens next in chapter two is this. He's there in the belly of the fish, and he prays this prayer, okay? Essentially, the, the essence of the prayer is this. I was about to die. I was at the gates of Sheol. The, the waves were crashing in around my head, and the seaweed was, I was all tangled up, in, and I was just about to die, but then, God, you saved me. You, you saved me, God, because salvation is of the Lord, And at that moment, it's almost like, man, maybe Jonah's getting it. Maybe he's seeing how loving God is, and maybe he's seeing that God is pursuing him in love. But he he adds that little stinger. You you remember that verse from last week that we looked at where where he goes, and God, thank you that I'm not like those terrible pagans. They pray to vain idols. I would never do such a thing, right? And then it's like, "Ah." he still doesn't get it. He he still doesn't get it. He's still walking in self-righteousness, right? which again, gives me great hope. <laughs> so that's what we saw. And so week, uh, chapter three, uh, week three, here we are. We, we see the, the reset button gets hit on this thing. Look at it again. Chapter three, let's look at verses one through two. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out, against the message, call out against it the message that I will tell you. This morning, I want us to see three things about the character or the nature of God, okay? So, so we're going to look at three different things about the character or the nature of God, because that's what this story is about. It's about the character and nature of God. Number one, here's what we, from that, here's what we can learn about the character and the nature of God. God unilaterally restores your relationship, your identity, and your mission, okay? God unilaterally restores your relationship, your identity, and your mission. Unilaterally meaning it's what God does. He's not dependent on you. He's not waiting on you. He's not looking at your past or present or future events or sins or anything like that. He just unilaterally restores it. Boom, done. I've completed it. It's something that I've done, says says the Lord, okay? So he, he restores the relationship here. Did you see that? 
He, he should be at enmity with Jonah. He should be irritated at him. He should hold a grudge against him. God told him to do something, and he did the exact opposite on purpose. Not only did he do that, but he endangered the lives of others with his disobedience. Right? Do you, do you remember the sailors? They're, they're, they're about to die because Jonah was disobedient. Right? So, so he's disobeyed God. He's put other people in danger. And God just says, okay, hey, I'm, I'm giving you my word a second time. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you again, go to Nineveh and, and tell them the message that I tell you to say. Listen, the only way that he could do that is if he restored the relationship back together. That, that God is not a God who holds grudges, right? Did you see that in the text? Did, did you see anything in there where God shows up and says, well, Jonah, you really blew it last time. You fumbled the ball, man. You almost got the sailors killed. Remember that? Well, okay, second chance. Second chance, but after this one, that's it, Jonah. Right? What, what were you thinking, Jonah? I, I can't believe you did this. Right? You're, ooh, you're lucky. Right? You're lucky I'm here giving you a second chance. No, it says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying to him, go into Nineveh. Right? No words of rebuke. No, no holding grudges. He just comes to him a second time, gives him a second chance, and restores that relationship back to what it was. Nothing that Jonah did, right? Do you remember his prayer? Yeah, he acknowledges that God was the one to save him, but he's still self-righteous in his prayer. So it's not even the prayer that saved him. It was God's unilateral decision to say, you're mine, you're my son, I'm gracious, loving, and holy, and so I'm just gonna restore us back. He comes to him a second time, and he does not hold a grudge. Now, I think if I were to ask you, does God hold grudges? Does God hold your past sins against you? I think most of us would say, no, no, God's not like that. God is good and loving and gracious. So intellectually, we believe that, but we don't believe it practically, so intellectually, oh yes, God is loving and good and holy and great, and, and he doesn't, I mean, all my sins are on the cross and he died for my past, my present, my future sins, and God doesn't hold a grudge, but when it comes to our prayer life, when it comes to actually getting in God's word, when it comes to showing up to church on Sunday morning, when it comes to all of that, we feel like God is in heaven, right, tapping his foot, like... Right, we, we kneel to pray and all of a sudden we believe that God is tapping his foot, holding the grudge, eager to remind us about what we did last week, eager to remind us about what we did last year, eager to remind us about what we did in high school, what we did in college. God is just eager. He's got his whole book of your sins and as soon as you bow your head to pray, he's gonna go, ha, I finally got you. Here we go. Here's what you did then. Here's what you did then. And here's what, right? That, that's, not, that's not God. He, he's not a God who holds grudges, right? And, and then uh, beyond that, so many of us, not only do we believe God is a God who holds grudges against us, we hold grudges against ourselves. <laughs> we base what we can do in the future on what we've done in the past. We look at our past failures and, and look at our future and say, there's no way I'm ever going to be different. There's no way I'm ever going to be changed. I messed up this marriage. I messed up this marriage. I messed up this marriage. And so every other marriage that I'm going to be in from here on out is just going to be terrible, right? I've tried to be a good dad. I've tried to read the Bible with my kids and I've tried to pray with them, but I just keep dropping the ball on it. So that's just, I'm always going to be that way. 
I'm always going to be a terrible father, not leading my family, not loving my wife. I might as well just go ahead and settle into it. Right? That, that's holding a grudge against yourself. Right? If God is not a God who holds grudges, you shouldn't hold a grudge against yourself either. And so God shows up here to Jonah, and, and he comes to him a second time and gives him a second chance. The question is, again, why? Why would God do such a thing? It should have said, uh, and then the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and God said, Jonah, get ready for leprosy. <laughs> right? Get ready for leprosy and bad breath, because you disobeyed me, and, and now here's what's going to happen. But no, he, he comes to him, and he restores the relationship. The question is, Jonah does not deserve this in any way. Um, he, he hasn't been obedient. He hasn't been repentant. But God just unilaterally shows up and restores the relationship. The question is, why? How does he do it? Again, it's in his nature. This is revealing something to us about the very nature of God. Why would he restore Jonah back? Why would he restore that relationship? He should have just let the fish eat him or just let him drown in the sea, find another prophet, and get the job done. But instead, he restores the relationship because that is the very nature of who God is. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19. Here's what it says. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, listen to this, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. How does God forgive us? How does God just restore us back to a right relationship with him after we've walked in sin? Well, he doesn't count that sin against us. That's how he does it, right? You, you think to yourself, how could God forgive me? How could God love me? I, I mean, I, I've walked in this sin. I mean, it's, I mean, <laughs> how could he just, it's because of the very nature of who God is. He is a reconciling, restoring God. He does not count that sin against you, therefore, no grudge, if he's not counting your sin against you, he can't hold a grudge against you because there's no sin to hold against you. So if he doesn't hold your sin against you, where does that sin go? You see, God is the only God who makes a demand and then completes the demand. He's the only God who demands something and then meets his own demands. You see, here's what God demands. One, perfect obedience. God demands perfect obedience. And where there's not perfect obedience, God demands death. Those are two things God demands from you. That uh, you obey him perfectly. Anybody get that one? Got that one down? No one? Okay. He, he demands that you obey him perfectly, and he demands where there is sin, that there be death. You see, Jesus Christ comes to fulfill that for us. He comes to die on the cross, right, for dying for our sin. Because, again, what does God demand? Where there is sin, there needs to be death. But not only that, okay, because if it's only Christ dying for our sins, that only brings us back to a clean slate. The problem is we don't need a clean slate. We need a lifetime of perfect obedience, okay? So who does that? Who does that? Jesus does that. He does both. Do you see the necessity for the life that we should have lived? That, that is what God demands of us. So he lived the life that we should have lived, 
gaining that perfect obedience, and then he died the death that we should have died. God's the God who makes a demand and then fulfills the demand. He does it all in Christ. That's how he can be a reconciling God who restores relationships. Moving along. In addition, God restored Jonah's identity. So, so God restores the relationship. He shows up. Jonah, I'm giving you a second chance. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not um, going to let my requirements go. Rather, they're going to be fulfilled in Jesus, but I'm giving you a second chance. Okay? And in that, he restored the relationship. And watch this. He also restores Jonah's identity. Okay. Here's a simple question. Has Jonah been acting like a son of God? Has Jonah been uh, an ambassador and a representative for the living God? How's he been doing at that? Pretty poorly, right? Pretty poorly. He doesn't want to go tell these Ninevites about God's love and grace and mercy because he thinks he's better than them, but he, he endangers the sailors. He's disobedient to God. He's acting outside of his true nature and his true identity. And so when God shows back up, by virtue of giving him a second chance, he's giving him an opportunity to operate within his true identity. And so not only does he restore the relationship, he also restores his identity by saying, Jonah, this is not who you are. You're my son. You're my chosen. I love you, Jonah. And so I want you to act like who I've created you to be. So, so by giving him the second chance, not only does he restore the relationship, but he also restores Jonah's identity because he gave him a second chance to act like who he really is. And so when God comes to us and he mends the relationship between us and him, when God saves us and, and, and he restores our identity by saying, this is who you are now. You, you're not the alcoholic anymore. You're not the the promiscuous girl anymore. You're not the arrogant dude anymore. You're not the angry guy anymore. That's not who you are. I've made you a new creature, a new creation, right? That's who, that's who you are now, so act that way. The problem is when we sin, we're actually operating in a nature that's not our own, and so when God comes to, again, restore that relationship back, what he's doing is restoring our identity by reminding us who we really are, God's children, God's daughters, God's sons, kings of the, or sons and daughters of the most high God. That, that's who he's reminding us, that's who you are, so operate out of who you really are. Don't operate who, out of who you're not, Right? In addition, like I said, he also restores Jonah's mission, okay? Look back at it. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Look back at chapter one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. <laughs> he, he doesn't compromise his mission. He gives him the exact same mission, exact same words, exact same mission. God is unrelenting about his mission. God wants the people of Nineveh to repent, and he is uncompromising, and so when he comes back and restores the relationship, he restores the identity, and he says, Jonah, your mission is not done. I will see Nineveh repent. God is unrelenting about that. The people of Nineveh are going to do that. That's what's going to happen. Right? But watch this. It's not only about Nineveh. 
You see, what God loves to do during the work is work on the worker. (laughs) During the work, God loves to work on the worker. As a matter of fact, that's how he gets the work done, by working on the worker. But by, by working on the missionary, by working on Jonah, I mean, again, he could have just got another prophet. If God was only about seeing Project Nineveh get completed, if God was only about seeing Nineveh repent, he just would have got somebody else. If he, like, flees and goes down to Tarshish, he, you know, hurls the storm, the ship breaks up, Jonah dies, well, that was easy, let's find another prophet, maybe one that will actually listen. But he doesn't do that. He shows up and restores the relationship, restores the identity, and restores the mission because he wants to work on Jonah. He wants Jonah to see how self-righteous he is. He wants Jonah to repent of his racism. He wants Jonah to repent of his nationalism and begin to walk in what it means to love and serve God with a joyful and cheerful heart. And so he restores his mission because God loves working on the workers, not just seeing the work done. Again, God could have just himself shown up. He doesn't have to get another prophet. He could just, you know, clouds break open, trumpets sound. He comes out, giant white horse riding through Nineveh, repent, right? And everyone does. That easy. But God wanted to see transformation in Jonah's life. Listen, if, if, you're, feeling, if you're feeling stagnant with your relationship with the Lord, get on mission. Start doing the work of the Lord and watch him transform you. I'm telling you, I, I, can, I can parade family after family across this stage who helped us plant this church and, and have them explain to you God's transforming work in their life as they got on board and got on mission to see this church become a reality. It wasn't just about planting Gospel Community Church. Although God wanted Gospel Community Church to be planted and, and to start. But during that process, God was working on the families in the church, right? God was working on me and my heart, and he was humbling me and humbling me and humbling me, right? I thought I, thought I was just going to show up, start preaching, and, you know, thousands of people would come. You know, they'd be asking me for book deals, and I'd be signing autographs, right? Didn't happen that way. So, so through the planting of this church, God humbled me and humbled me and showed me what he was doing and, and, and all of these other families that came on and joined and helped us start this church. I mean, the, their marriages were restored and, and people repented of sin and began to walk with God and, and their lives were changed and the church was planted because that's how, that's how God works. God is dedicated to work on people during the mission. He restores the mission by restoring Jonah. That's what, that's what we see God doing here. So by virtue of being a member of this church, your mission is Fayetteville, and God does not want to just see Fayetteville changed by the gospel. He wants to see you changed by the gospel. Okay? God's heart, I believe, is to see Fayetteville transformed and changed by the gospel. That's why he called us here to plant this church. That's why we are a church here. That's why we sing to Jesus. That's why we preach in Jesus' name, right? We do all of that because we want to see our city transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by doing so, by us being here, by us being about seeing the city transformed by the gospel, God wants you transformed by the gospel, Day by day, piece by piece, looking at Jesus' completed work on the cross and applying it to your life. You see, the gospel isn't just for lost people. It is for lost people. 
It's for saved people too, right? Here's what we say all the time. The gospel isn't just the ABCs of the Christian faith. The gospel is the A to Z. There is no deeper biblical truth, right? The gospel is the deepest biblical truth. Um, and, and so God wants to see this city transformed. But listen, here's how he's gonna transform the city, by transforming you with that same great gospel message. So, <clears throat> The word of the Lord has come again, right? We, we saw that. He's restored uh, his relationship. He restored his identity. He restored the mission, right? That, that's what he's done. He's told Jonah what to do. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, the message that I tell you, okay? So Jonah arose, okay? Now, jump back over to chapter one. Look at this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Right, look at verse three, but Jonah rose, okay? So again, it's, it's mirroring here. Chapter one, Jonah gets the word from the Lord, he hears what God told him to do, he gets up, and he goes the exact opposite direction. The question is, what's he gonna do here? Is he going to obey, or is he going to be disobedient? Let's look at it. Look at verse three, A. Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. All right, finally, finally, Jonah's getting it, right? He, he's finally obeying God and doing what he's supposed to do. He's finally realized how loving God is and how God is pursuing him and chasing him for relationship and transformation, and God's restored his identity. And, and Jonah's, man, the, the light must have went off for Jonah, Right? or not. Look at chapter four. <laughs> this is so awesome. Chapter four, verse four. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? That's evidence that he doesn't get it, right? He didn't change. He hasn't repented. He just got up and went uh, out of self-preservation, right? He doesn't want to be swallowed by anything else. <laughs> He's been puked up on the beach you know, Lord only knows what he could send to swallow him up now if he doesn't obey. I mean, he got hit with the storm. He got, you know, basically beat up and berated by these sailors. He got tossed in the sea. He got swallowed up by a fish and had to stay there for three days. God comes the second time and says, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I love you. Go do what I told you to do. And out of self-preservation, Jonah goes, fine, whatever, I'll do it. And, and he obeys, right? Here's what I want us to see about, again, the, the very nature and character of God. Here's my second point. God wants our motivation to be, uh, God wants our motivation to repentant obedience to be his grace. God wants our motivation to repentant obedience to be his grace. D Jonah here is not repentant, <laughs> He, he, he's obedient out of self-preservation. He's obedient because of worldly woes, okay? Here's the thing. What we see with Jonah here um, is not uh, godly conviction, uh, but it's worldly woes. Let me explain that. When you sin and when you walk in sin and live in a lifestyle of sin, it's painful, Right, It's fun for a while, the Bible tells us, <laughs> but then it eventually comes back to bite you. It eventually comes back to get you. If you look at pornography on a regular basis, 
It might be fun for the moment, but it's going to come back and bite you. It will come back and blow up your marriage. It will come back and ruin relationships, okay? If you walk in uh, bitterness, you're gonna end up being a bitter person. If you walk in anger, you're gonna end up being an angry person. Sin, by definition of what it is, is destructive and corrosive, And so what we see here is not Jonah being motivated to go and preach to Nineveh because God is so good and loving and gracious, but rather he's he's motivated to go because of the pain of sin in his life. And so as as I've pastored people and as I've counseled them and, and talked with them, I've had a lot of people come to me and say, man, I just, I'm just tired of living the life. You know, I'm I'm tired of living this way. And my question to them is, okay, do you really hate that sin or do you just hate the consequences of it? Because if you just hate the consequences and you still love the sin, (laughs) then you really don't want to obey God. You really don't want to love him. You really don't want to serve him, right? But if you really hate that sin and hate the consequences, that's a sign to me that you really are under godly conviction. Jonah here is not under godly conviction. He's just feeling the pain of the sin in his life. Right? His sin has caused him a massive storm, you know, almost drowning in the ocean, swallowed up by a fish, and he's just like, whatever, I don't, I don't want any more of that. Right? So here, uh, Jonah is a terrible model for joyful Christian ministry. The proper motivation for repentant obedience is not so that God will love us, but it's because he already does. We are motivated to repent because God is good. Right? Listen, one of the main reasons that God is chasing Jonah so relentlessly is because God is dedicated to Jonah's joy. If you use a motivator, any, anything other than God's grace, as a motivator to serve God, it's going to end bad, okay? Guilt is a terrible motivator to serve God. But, I mean, I, I can't tell you how, how many times I've, I've sat in the pews and, and heard a sermon like, you know this is what you ought to do now. Y'all ought to stop quitting all that sinning. That's just terrible. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves. Stop doing that. Serve God. Do what's right. That, that's an awful motivator. Guilt is a terrible motivator to serve God. Duty is a terrible motivator to serve God. Listen, tradition and religion is a terrible motivator to serve God. Again, that, we live here in the South, and that's the air that we breathe, Right? You go to church because that's just what good folk do. You know, you, you say, bow, hey, pray before a meal. Come on now. We're in the South, y'all. You, you got to, you know, at least pretend to be a Christian sometimes, right? That's duty and that's tradition and that's religion. And all of those things are terrible motivators for loving and serving God, right? Again, why, why do you think the church is shrinking at the rate that it's shrinking, because we raised a generation of people who served God out of tradition and out of duty and out of obligation. And they grew up and was like, this is terrible. We don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> no one told them how loving God is. No one told them how gracious he is. And no one told them that that's actually the motivator to love and serve God and to live a godly life is because he loves us so much. God here is after Jonah's joy. He wants Jonah's life to be Filled with joy, which happens this way. When you're motivated by God's love and grace to love and serve him, you find your deepest joy and God gets glory. Yeah. 
But when you're motivated, again, by, by guilt, you're motivated by shame, you're motivated by religion, you're motivated by all these other things that, well, I just gotta get up and go to church this morning. You know, I gotta raise my hands during the song. You know, if, if you're motivated to serve God through all those things, it's going to rob you, it's going to suck all of the joy out of serving God. Um, but what we see here uh, from Jonah is a terrible example, uh, but what it reveals about God's character is that that's what he wants. God, God is so after your joy. I want you to know that, okay? God is going to chase you down. He is going to haunt you. He is going to throw everything that he can at you so that you will serve him out of a proper motivation and begin to walk in joy. When you serve him out of proper motivation, you get joy, God gets glory, right? So um, that's what uh, we see here in this text. The back half of this verse, uh, verse 3b, here's what it says. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth, okay, um, as we look at the Bible, um, as we look at the big picture and the big meta narrative, um, here is what we often discover. The Bible seems to have a running theme of the world system in opposition to God. It seems to have a running theme of a big, massive system um, or a group of people or city that stands in opposition to God, and then God has to come and defeat that. Okay, uh, Pharaoh and his army, right? What, what are they doing? They're, they're enslaving all of the children of, uh, of Israel and, and they won't let them go, right? Uh, he, he slaughters and kills the babies and yeah. So big giant world system in opposition to God and his people, right? Uh, what about Goliath, right? Again, big massive army, Goliath as the representative standing in opposition to God's people. What about the city of Jericho, right? Big giant walls, uh, that is the land that God promised his children, but they can't overtake the land because that city is standing in the way, right? What about uh, the, the Roman Empire, right, in the New Testament? An entire empire that is dedicated to killing Christians um, and, and seeing them slaughtered, and they, they threw them to animals, and the, you know they made them play the gladiator games. Uh, you, know, you can worship any other god as long as you worship Caesar as well, right? That, that's the, the Roman Empire, right? So, so the Bible has this running theme um, of of these big, massive systems, people groups, or governments that stand in opposition to God and His people. The question is. How does God dispatch and destroy those world systems, governments, and people groups? How does he do it? Does he raise up massive armies, strong, intelligent people uh, to lead the charge? No, no. How does he defeat Pharaoh and his army, right? He picks a dude uh, who's been a shepherd for a long time. He stutters a lot, and everyone hates him. That's the guy I choose to defeat Pharaoh and his armies, right? How do, how do they defeat the walls of Jericho? A marching band, right? A God-elected marching band with, you know, seven priests, seven horns. You know, they're just walking around. You know, and then the whole thing, it's like, how, what about Goliath, right? The, the tiny shepherd boy, that's who he chooses, how, how does he basically topple the entire Roman system and structure, right? He chooses uh, 12 disciples that can't ever seem to get anything right, 
most of them uneducated, and they start a, a world movement, and that movement spreads throughout all of Rome, uh, and then they basically have to legalize Christianity, right? If you're a historian, you've heard, maybe you've heard this said, that Constantine made Christianity. That's absolutely incorrect, right? What happened was the entire Roman world was getting saved, and Constantine was like, all right, well, guess we got to make it legal, Right? So God is constantly using the weak things of the world to shame the wise. And that's exactly what I want us to see about God's very character. Here's my third point. God uses the weak things of the world to demonstrate his strength. This is exactly what God does and what he continues to do. So look back at this verse and I want you to see what it says here. It says, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breadth. So, so how is God going to, um, as you guys know, Nineveh is a city that stands in opposition to God and his people. Nineveh is a great city. Again, not like Tony the Tiger. Think more like the Great Wall, okay? Um, like, do you guys get that? Okay, not like, hey, it's great, but great as in how big it is. This city is incredibly advanced, Okay, like if, if you're like walking through the wilderness and you see the city of Nineveh, it's big, it's shiny, and it's scary. The, the walls were 100 foot tall, 20 foot wide, hundreds of towers, okay? This city is an extremely pagan city. They're an extremely cruel city. If they captured an army, what they would do is take all the soldiers, they would go into that village, round up the women and children, and they would burn the women and children in front of the army that they captured, they would cut off noses. They would skin people alive. Uh, I, I read some, uh, some uh, historians this week that said most likely um, when Jonah entered into the city, there was literally human skins hanging on the city walls because they would capture people, skin them alive, and hang their skin on the city walls, okay? This place is gnarly to say the least. It's fortified, it's advanced, and it's incredibly cruel, Right? They are not lovers of God. They don't want to see God's kingdom advance. So how does he bring this massive city, three days journey just walking across it, how does he bring this massive city to its knees? <laughs> One Jewish dude uh, who's a racist, nationalist, self-righteous, with an eight-word sermon that doesn't even talk about God's grace, by the way, he uses that to demonstrate his grace. <laughs> now listen, that gives me great hope. You wanna know why? Because God uses losers. That means there's hope for you. <laughs> and there's hope for me too. There's hope for me because God uses losers as a part of his master plan. God uses weak people. He uses small people. He uses sinful people to complete his master plan right? That's what Jesus comes to save. Jesus comes to save sinners. He doesn't come to save people who have it all together. He says this in Mark. He says this in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick uh, do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners, Again, Jesus isn't, he isn't saying there's two camps here. Oh, there's some really righteous people, and I don't really care about them. I came to save these sinners over here, 
No, he's saying he came to call people who don't have it all together. He wants to use people who are failures. He wants to use people who are screw-ups. He wants to use people who just don't have it together, (laughs) right? And again, that means there's hope for you and me. Listen, that means that you can drop the act. (laughs) That means you can drop the act, So many of us show up here on Sunday mornings with a big fat smile on our face. How you doing, brother? I'm doing great, brother. Good to see you. You know, handshake. When your life is falling apart, your Christian brothers and sisters ask you, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm doing great. Got any prayer requests? Oh, no. I don't, you can't pray for, I don't have any prayer requests. But I mean, I could pray for you though, because I'm fine. I've got it all together. You, You can drop the act, okay? Drop the act. You don't have it all together. Uh, when it comes to perfectly obeying God, you're a failure, um, and, and that's the truth of it, okay? <laughs> um, so, so you can drop the act. Here's the good news, though. You're a total failure, but your future is really bright, okay? You're a total failure, but your future is really bright. <laughs> you know, Jonah goes in, he preaches this eight-word sermon that doesn't say anything about God's grace, right? It says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Uh, and God uses this dude who's a disobedient, racist, self-righteous guy with his eight-word sermon to bring an entire city to its knees. That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing feat that he uses this total loser failure to accomplish his task. So it's worse than we could ever believe it is, right? We're, We're more sinful than we know, but God is way more gracious and loving than we can ever imagine. We're a total failure, yet our future is really, really bright because God uses total failures. Let's keep reading. Verses four through five. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and called out, here it is, this amazing sermon he's gonna preach. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. How loving and gracious of him. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth for the, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Uh, sackcloth is like really uncomfortable, itchy stuff, and you did that to show how repentant and, and sorry you were. So he goes in, he's walking around. I can just imagine, you know, you had 40 days and God's gonna blow this place up, get ready, you know, and, and the whole city just reacts. The, the, the words that he says just pierces their hearts and he brings a mighty nation to its knees and to where they were, they, they were usually, you know, pagans. They, they were involved in drunken festivals and orgies and all this stuff, and all of a sudden they're repenting and they're bowing down and worshiping God and they're, they're putting on sackcloth to show how repentant they are from, from this loser and his eight-word sermon, right? The, the question is, how? How, how, does, how does that happen, right? We've looked back and forth between chapters one and three and, and kind of seen the similarities. There's one thing different. Do you guys notice it? Do you notice the one thing different between chapter one and chapter three? Look back at chapter one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Look at chapter three. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Huh. The message that I tell you. 
How does he bring this great city to its knees? How do they see that God is gracious and loving? How in the world does this loser do such an amazing task? Because there is power in the message and the word of God. It had nothing to do with him, right? He's a total failure. He's a total loser, right? It has nothing to do with him. It has to do with the power of God's word. Right? Listen, that's why every week I stand up here and I say, look, all I want to do is I just want to tell you what God's word says because I'm a total failure and if I try to give you any wisdom, it's not going to go very far. But if I just communicate to you what God's word says, there's power in that and there's life transformation in the word of God. So how does he bring the city to its knees? The power of the word of God. Here's my entire sermon in one sentence. God's grace is restorative, it's motivating, and it's strong. It's all done by him and for his glory. Amen? Let me read that one more time. There should have been more amens. God's grace is restorative, it's motivating, and it's strong. It's done by him and for his glory. Here's a couple application points, and I'm out of your way. Number one, be restored back to God. If you're here this morning and and you feel distant from him, maybe it's because you've been believing that God holds grudges, and and you just feel like he's far away, right? You, You feel like when you bow your head to pray that God is just eager to bring up that list of stuff that you've done because he's a God who holds grudges. Be restored back to him. He's not a God who holds grudges. Be restored back to him today, just like Jonah was restored back. It had nothing to do with Jonah. (laughs) God just restored him back because he loved him, and God is ready to do that for you today. He's the God of second chances, third chances, 14th chances, a billionth chance. He's ready. Be restored back to God today. Application point number two, drop the act. You're a sinner, right? Application point, drop the act. Some of you came in here this morning and you are feeling crushed under the weight of your sin. And what you're doing is you're hiding it and and you're keeping it right here and you don't want anybody to see. You don't want anybody to know that you're a sinner. You don't want anybody to know the weight and the shame that you're carrying. Drop the act. Tell somebody in this church what's going on. Let us pray for you. Let us love you. Let us serve you. Listen, nobody here is gonna be shocked when you confess sin. You wanna know why? Because we all know we're sinners too. Okay? So drop the act this morning. Don't, don't walk out of here feeling crushed under the weight of your sin. Tell somebody about it. Let us pray for you. Let us help you, okay? Last point. Step out and do something big for God and have no fear of failure. <laughs> Remember Ephesians chapter two? It says that you were predestined for good works before the foundation of the world, right? We just said that the work of God and accomplishing big things for God is all his work anyway, <laughs> So what that does is it frees you up to step out and do something big for God without any fear of failure. Because if it does fail, that's okay. (laughs) And if it succeeds, it's not your work anyway. It's something God did. So it removes all of the pressure for success. (laughs) Right? This is something that has been so monumental to me as we we began to plant this church. I was so afraid that we were gonna start this thing and it was gonna fall apart, like the wheels were just gonna come off in the first two weeks, right? But then I began to learn what what Jesus says in Matthew. He says, I will build my church. It's what 
It's what Jesus does. It's his work. It's God's work. And so what that does for me is it frees me up to step out there and start the church and get things going and just believe that God will show up and do something. If he doesn't, guess what? He's working on me in the failure. Remember what I said about the mission, about God loves to work on workers while they're doing the work? Well, if the church falls apart and doesn't work, well, God has been working on me in it. And so, ladies, maybe you want to step out there and start a women's Bible study. Uh, Guys, maybe you want to, you know, uh, start a Bible study at, at your job, right? I don't know what God's calling you to do, but step out there and do it and don't be afraid to fail because even if you do fail, God's working on the worker during the work. And if it does succeed, it's his work anyway. This story is about God's grace. It's not about a dude in a boat. It's not about a whale. It's not about a fish. It's about God's relentless grace. It's about God chasing and pursuing and coming after you because he is so dead set on your joy and him getting glory. And and the greatest picture, the, the greatest view of God's glory was when his son hung on the cross. It looked like defeat, didn't it? It looked like he was defeated. It looked like the son of God, I mean, that, that's done. They, they stabbed him up under his rib cage and blood and water flowed out. They, they pronounced him dead. It looked like defeat, but the greatest thing that looked like defeat was actually the greatest victory in all of time. It was the cross, and that was the picture of God's glory. And he did all of that so that he could shower you and chase you with his unrelenting grace so that you would be motivated by his love to do his work and will and find your deepest joy, which leads to God's glory. That's the gospel. That's the great message of Jesus. That's what we proclaim, and that's what we live for. Jesus Christ lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died in our place for our sins. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this great story. I thank you that you've preserved um, the book of Jonah for us throughout all of history so that we could study it uh, this morning. Uh, Father, I I want uh, us to be restored back to you, God. I I don't want anyone to leave here this morning feeling far from you, feeling distant from you. Help us to be restored back to a loving relationship with you, Father. I pray that we're motivated, God, We're not motivated by guilt or motivated by shame to serve you and to love you, but we're motivated uh, by your grace that we see how gracious you've been to us and that's the motivator for us to love and serve you. Uh, Father, I I pray that, uh, God, just like Jonah, we we see that all of this work is is done by you and and it's done by your your power alone. And so, uh, Father, I pray that people here this morning would realize that you use weak things to shame the wise. You use weak things to tear down the strong. Uh, God, that we would realize that we're pretty much failures when it comes to obeying you. (laughs) Uh, But God, you you still... Uh, And so, God, we just praise you for how great you are. We praise you for how gracious you are. Uh, God, I pray that no one No one would leave here this morning not being in awe of you, without being in awe of your grace, without being in awe of your love. ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen.